and welcome back to the Sunday Long Read Podcast. My name is Jacob Feldman. Thank you for joining us again today. It's early September when we're recording. It's amidst the start of another football season that for the NFL, for college, for high school, also for Pop Warner. And the NFL has circuitously probably become a frequent topic of coverage for both Don and me. So it's only fitting, given the timing, that we're talking about some ball today. And we got the perfect guest to do it. It's BuzzFeed News national reporter Albert Samaha. Albert covers criminal justice mainly for BuzzFeed News. He's had five stories listed in the best American sports writing. He's also uh, made the Sunday long read list uh, more than a handful of times, including our best of list in 2015, which I went back and checked today. He's also been a guest editor, one of our first guest editors with the Sunday long read uh, did an excellent job doing that. We'll, we'll link to that uh, below here. Uh, a graduate of the Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism, also a graduate of the University of San Diego, and most importantly, the author of a new book, which he sent to me. I had the, the, the pleasure of reading over this last weekend. The book is called Never Ran, Never Will. It's the story of boyhood and football in a changing American inner city. And uh, Don actually described it well enough to make the back cover, so I'll, I'll, I'll go with his description He says, Never Ran, Never Will is the irresistible story of the Mo Better Jaguars, a football team of hard luck boys in low-income Brownsville, Brooklyn. With dazzling prose, Albert Samaha's big, beautiful book about teamwork and ambition, growing up and breaking away, will touch you with its heart and grace. Don's got away with words, so so does Albert. Albert, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Jacob. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, awesome. And I know you're in the midst of, of, of beginning a, a, a mini book tour. You know, I've seen some dates online. How has how has the release gone for the book? How has it been? How does it feel to be done with it? It's good. It's good. I feel like you know you kind of you get this whole big project done over this long stretch of time, and then suddenly there's this lull. It reminds me a lot of uh, you know you'd hear about the the Tom Brady naps before the Super Bowl, mm-hmm. where it's just like there's that kind of dead stretch of time before <laughs> the action starts. That's what it felt like the past few weeks, and it's it, like last night. It was good to see you there at the book party. Yeah, um, I had a pleasure coming out. Yeah, and and it was a fun time. Just kind of all this kinetic energy built up, finally being able to 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 do something as opposed to just kind of sitting around tweeting about the book coming out. <laughs> to actually be out there and talking about it was uh, was pretty exciting. Yeah, sure. Was this a book where you were kind of cramming to the finish line, or, or, or did you pace yourself well for, for being, you know, your first book, right? I, I think I paced myself pretty well, but I think there's no getting around cramming it to the finish line. Every draft I read to the very end, there was always something I would change. And even when I was recording the audiobook, and it's a finished manuscript by that point, it's already kind of going to the presses, I, I caught all these things I would want to change, <clears throat> little things, and I was like, oh man, just got to save that for the for the paperback. Um, but it really is a thing where it, it, it's such a big project, such a long project, um, that, that it kind of spans, you know, I, when I first started writing this five years ago, four years ago, early started reporting it, started putting down some words for it. I was a different writer than I am now. And I'd like to think I've grown as a writer. And I think when you work on something that long and you read things that you had written so long ago, it, it's, it's a good thing for me. It feels healthy that I will read passages and be like, Oh, you know, I would handle that differently now. Um, hmm. Yeah. So it's almost like a time capsule of, of everything I learned to the point that I that I began writing this. Yeah, yeah, that that is really interesting. So, so let's dive into it. I'm I'm curious. You know, you're you're a criminal justice reporter. The book uh, is as much about uh, as the, the subtitle says, an American inner city uh, in this decade, in this era. And so, why is this a sports book? I mean, what, why why write about sports uh, to to talk about some of these issues? How, how did that happen? So I, I think one thing that I've always been fascinated by with uh, the intersection of sports and so many other issues that I like to write about is that I think sports is such a great vehicle to dive into um, to dive into any issue you want because I feel like when 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 we think we're talking about sports people let their guard down and people are more open about other aspects of life I think it's a lot easier for me to go to a Pop Warner football field and talk to parents and coaches about their school situation than it would be for me to just walk up to a school and start asking mm-hmm. parents and kids about their school situation. And, or, you know, like in the book for me to go to parents, coaches and kids and talk about like the, 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 the gang, um, minefield in Brownsville, a lot easier on a, on, on a football field yeah. than it would be, um, any other place that, that I could do it. And, and so I think it's kind of this, this common ground where, and a, particularly with the way football is now that if you are, if, if, if I'm there and I'm able to talk to folks about football, there's kind of that common ground that allows people to trust me. Um, and, and I think sports in general just kind of opens these avenues for conversation for all these social issues 
Uh, one thing I've, I find so interesting now about the way football has become so politicized with the Kaepernick stuff and the way Trump's responded to it is that suddenly football has become very directly political. Absolutely. And to me, that it, that's very counter to the way that, that, that sports has always served us, which is that sports has typically been indirectly political. And it's been kind of a means through which we can read people's politics based on how they re- relate to sports and how they interpret sports because people tend to be very honest about how they feel about this team or this player. Um, and the politics had kind of always been under the surface and kind of hidden and, and coded. Um, and, you know, we can cite the examples from like how, for example, how, you know, announcers will describe black quarterbacks versus white quarterbacks or, you know, how, uh, or, you know, the, 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 all these even coded language that's kind of baked into the way we talk about sports um, that we had, that, that we, we had read as political, but had always been, uh, apolitical enough for people to be open about using it. So I, I think the reason I wanted to use football, um, to kind of tell the stories I wanted to tell, uh, was that I think in a lot of ways, football is, a, is in its really interesting place right Absolutely, now. Absolutely, for sure. Uh, where it's very much changing and it's changing in, in a way that I saw as parallel to the way inner mm. cities are changing, um, where that you were seeing, uh, in the inner cities, we are seeing objective measures of progress where crime rates are lower, where there's more, uh, you know, healthy places to eat, more sit-down restaurants, um, higher job rates, uh, and, 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 and that progress comes with a cost, though, and we're seeing gentrification, where the development is coming, but it also brings with the displacement, um, and, there, and, 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 and people are, are, are being harmed by the progress that we're seeing, and football is the same way, where the brain research has been objectively good. It's good that we are trying to change the rules and trying to prevent the long-term brain damage that we now know, you know, is directly related to football. Um, and one question I hope to explore in this book was kind of what is the cost that progress, what is lost, um, at least to the people who kind of love the game and are trying to navigate uh, what it looks like now. That's awesome. There's about seven different things we'll, we'll dive into. I wrote them down, so we won't. We, we can go back to them. <laughs> well, well, let's let's stay there. What what is lost? I think if you ask the people who have been a part of the game for a long time, uh, it's the obvious answer that, oh, well, you know, uh, you're, you're making football less interesting. You're making football less about toughness, uh, less about what it truly means to play football. And I think the, the kind of premise of that uh, mindset is what does it, what is football? What is kind of the root of football? What are the aspects of the game that we cannot strip from from, from the sport. Um, and, and to a lot of people, football is rooted in that, that, that violence and that uh, requirement of physical and mental toughness. Um, I don't, I, I, I think I disagree with that perspective. I, I think, I, I mean, I played, I played cornerback. I played wide receiver. I was never a great tackler. Seven on seven was always like my favorite drill in practice. And I mean, to me, the appeal of football is not necessarily the violence, but, but the, the artistry of like the passing mm-hmm. game and the way DBs and cornerbacks will kind of have their hand-to-hand combat, and that there, there, there's other aspects of the game that I think we can evolve to appreciating more than just kind of the, the, this, this, this violence that we've long appreciated. And, and so I don't think much is, is, is lost. And I think that's one of the things I found, is, is that I think I was initially a skeptic of all the changes being made to football, where I was, I was of the camp where it's just, you know, the game is always going to be violent, and as long as we give players informed consent and, and, and not try to, like, deny the reality of the risks they're facing, then it's okay. Let's keep the game the way it is. Why take away, you know, how can you defend a, a wide receiver if you can't hit him above the shoulders? But really just within the past two or three years, I think my mindset has evolved to the point where it's like, why not try to make the game as safe as possible? I think football, as much as it as much as leagues will try to change little rules, it will always, we will never take away, it'll never be that like people that play football will have the same rate of CTE as like people that play basketball. I feel like we haven't seen control studies yet, but I feel like it, there will always be a part of the game that, that will be damaging to the brain. The question is how much, how much can we change and, and, and still keep the sport the way it is? And I think the answer Before is saying that you said that the, the changing sport is, is, has some parallels to the changing city. So what, what is lost in, in Brownsville as Brownsville changes? It's, it's this sense of community that was forged through tough times. And, and, and you have residents that have lived in Brownsville a long time, seen higher crime rates, seen less development, and 
have worked really hard to improve that community through kind of their own efforts to band together and, and, and create a strength and a pride um, in their community through organizations like the youth football team that I followed. And as, you know, more and more folks from outside the community move into Brownsville and rents rise higher, that sense of, that sense of uh, togetherness, that sense of community, I think it's lost. And, and it, I mean, the, the, the irony is that the like folks in Brownsville, like would mm-hmm. like shop at Whole Foods and like, would be happy to see a Whole Foods down the street from their house or like a sit down restaurant and, and are like, are glad to walk up and down the streets that are, are, are much cleaner and much safer than the streets they walked, you know, down 20 years ago. But the question is, is there a way to have that development without displacing the people that kind of work to bring that progress? And saw the tough times, and that question hasn't been answered yet in a satisfying way. I think you know across the country, and the thing that's interesting about Brownsville is the nature of it, which is that it's the uh, the housing capital, the, the housing project um, capital of, of the country. It has the highest concentration of housing projects of any zip code in the country, and and, and you can't tear those down the way you could a lot of kind of private properties. And so the question is whether Brownsville, with its high concentration of housing projects, will experience development in a different way, whether it has the potential to have a more balanced growth than a lot of other places. Mm, yeah. Uh, community raised uh, by toughness is a, is a really interesting phrase. Uh, without, without getting too esoteric, it seems like this is you know a, a theme in both, both football and, and the inner city to bring them together. What would you say is the value of toughness or, or, um, or, or you know, a lot of times that's combined with masculinity and we've seen whether it's football whether whether it's culture you know the the, the negative effects of emphasizing toughness in in culture um, do you feel like it, does toughness have value in, in an ideal culture that you're setting up yeah i think there's there's i think there's two ways that i that i view toughness and the virtue of it i think for for me I, you know, I grew up in a more like middle class setting, and I now work in like a, you know, I'm a writer. I work in a professional world, and I think the uh, the, the the toughness that has benefited me is just that idea of like that toughness that we all think about, just kind of pushing through. And if you deal, if you have to deal with a problem instead of complaining, find a solution, and kind of just that general mental toughness that we associate with discipline and work mm, yeah, ethic, perseverance, and you know, yeah, yeah, and and I think that there is always a place for that. And even though we associate it with masculinity, and I think it's wrong for us to associate with that with masculinity, and I think most of us or a lot of us no longer do. I think we just see that as a as a, a non gender trait. Um, I think the, the the way in which it is more so gendered, and, and the way I, I try to like the the, the the version of it I try to tackle in the book is for for kids growing up in an environment where toughness is not just about advancing in life but kind of surviving day to day where where if you're a boy walking down the street and you have to deal with the fear of the kids on the corner either jumping you or not jumping you and you have to kind of carry this hard front that 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 it's not just about perseverance and 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 uh, accomplishing what you want to accomplish. It's just about making the other folks think that you're just as tough it's not tougher than them that it's a tool it's a defense mechanism and I think that is the version of toughness that becomes more gendered because it is it is specific to kind of these these adolescent male on male interactions. And I mean, one I mean, you know, this the, the subtitle of the book is Boyhood and Football, right? So I wanted to make clear specifically that the experiences I'm portraying in the book are about males. And I would be curious to kind of explore more and think about more the way toughness would develop for like an adolescent girl in a situation having to deal with kind of the same boys on a corner who would approach her in a different way than they would, you know, the, 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 the boy, the, the adolescent boy coming across their corner. But, but I, I think that version of toughness as a defense mechanism, as a tool to me, seems difficult to root out because we're not just saying that, well, we, we should, we should care less about like boys shouldn't have to wear this mask of toughness in order for them to become men. It should just kind of be a, a, a trait of perseverance and a thing you develop um, it's it's a lot harder to address the way toughness becomes toxic when when toughness is also kind of a, a defense mechanism, a tool that boys use in order to survive day to day. Because now it's now there's pragmatic concerns as well. 
and without, and I think so, you know, so many of the problems that kind of I, I explore in the book are, they're rooted in that one problem of just when you, when we have like decades and decades of decades of like racist oppression that will put a lot of poor black and brown people in a neighborhood that will cause so many problems that before we can fix, before we decide whether or not kids should be playing football, we need to address the fact that a lot of kids are playing football because it'll get them to school for free because the schools are unequal and because college is expensive and high schools can be expensive. Uh, before we can address kind of this this aspect of well, should these boys wear this hardness on their faces at all time? Well, let's let's kind of solve why they they feel the need to do that in the first place. Yeah, no, that that, that is very insightful. It's definitely something that, that you get to in the book, and uh, it is interesting to think of you know the, the the privilege of not having to be tough is is interesting. It's something we probably don't talk enough about. Uh, jumping back to, to what you talked about earlier, I, I don't want to miss the thread there on. Um, kind of the honesty that you're able to pull out by by looking at this through the lens of sports, through the lens of football, and 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 the fact that you're you're writing about and interviewing and reporting on on kids in particular boyhood, you know the the maleness of it, but also the youth of it. Uh, it it's interesting because we, we've this I I would put this book in in a genre of of, of popular media vehicles uh, in reverse order. You know, Hard Knocks looks at, at pro football players. We've had Last Chance You, a very popular Netflix series on. Juco players, Friday Night Lights, a very popular uh, nonfiction and, and, and fiction look at high school, and, and this is even before all that. It's kind of you know if that's if that's the trilogy of, of football literature, this is uh, you know the, the prologue in, in a lot of ways. So wh- why why focus on the on, on this this age group and 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 just from a reporting perspective, how, what, what are the difficulties and when, when you're really you know uh, looking so intensely and spending so much time with these preteen kids. Yeah, so so I was interested in this age group because one of the main things I wanted to explore uh, was what separates the kids that make it out of tough circumstances from the ones that, that don't. And as I have kind of tra- attempted to explore that throughout my career, I, I kept, you know, encountering the reality that those the, that crossroads moment begins a lot earlier, I think, than... than, than that maybe I anticipated, maybe a lot of folks think, which is that, you know, a, a kid doesn't pass the point of no return when they're in high school, when they're, you know, it really starts early when they're in middle school, like when, they're, when, you're, when you're 9, 10, 11 years old is when kids start to face the decisions that will snowball into other decisions, into other circumstances. And I wanted to get there as early as possible and, and see kids before they had, before you can tell whether, oh man, this guy's on the right track, this guy's on the wrong track. And I wanted to get to the point where you couldn't tell what track they were on yet. And and, and you have to just start younger and younger. And I think for, for a lot of kids in the book, it was like nine, ten years old um, for me to get to the point where... Yeah, did, did that surprise you how, how young that was going in? Or, or did you kind of have a recognition? You, I didn't mention this before, but you know, you started with a magazine article and then and then got to the book. When did you kind of understand how, how young you I think you, I had had a, a slight sense of it from previous reporting, just like in schools and, and, and like in... in, in um, in uh, low-income communities, but this, I, I mean, I'd never spent as much time on a project as I spent on this one, and I think I got a new appreciation for why, and I think I came into the project, like, with an understanding that it does start at this young age, but I never really understood why it starts at the young age, and what, and what were the mm-hmm. pressures particular to that age, and how they differ from the pressures um, that, that hit teenagers and, and high schoolers. Um, so, 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 I, so that's why I wanted to, 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 to hit this age. And what was the second part of the question? The, the, the difficulty of, 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 of covering kids and spending so much time with kids and figuring out how to report w- w- with young boys. Right. So, so yeah, so the, the reporting aspect was, was something that I kind of had to figure out and develop as I went because my natural instinct as a reporter, of course, is to get as much time with my sources as possible and to do whatever I can to kind of get as much interview hours, get as much information so I can put everything together. And with, with kids, I had to keep reminding myself that, 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 that they're kids. And so oftentimes I would have interactions with them, like in the park and I'd never met their parents because their parents mm-hmm. had never come to practice. Mm-hmm. Parents were always working and their parents just knew I was there talking to them because they had known there was a reporter working on a book about the team, but I never really had a conversation with them. So it was strange kind of having, my having my the kids as my primary sources for the story versus usually even in the past when I've reported on kids, usually it'll be like some limited 
um, closed ecosystem interview with a kid somewhere with like a parent or teacher watching, but then the majority of the content comes from the teacher or the parent, and that it's teacher or the parent telling me about the kid's life, right. and then the kid just give me a couple quotes. While here, you know, the, I spent time with the kids and I hung out with the kids and I like ate food with them and I like you know stood with them while they like drank Gatorade after practice and you know walked with them to you know the subway station and stuff like that and, and my interactions with them. So the, the balance was trying to figure out how to not exploit my power dynamic as an adult when they're kids and understanding that 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 I need to kind of be more conscious about about what they're telling me and about the access they're giving me than I would when it's just an adult. And it's just like, well, you know, you're grown and you're giving me consent to like enter your life and write about your life. I had to consider more so the fact that the kids, everything they're telling me, they know it's going through a book, but they're still kids, right? <laughs> right. And, and, and I had to consider, let me make sure that I, that, that I'm kind of treating them with kind of the respect and, and, and the justice mm. um, that they might not, be, they might not have kind of the agency or maturity to fight for themselves. Yeah, so I yeah. kind of had to make sure that I check myself on that. Yeah, and you're almost kind of playing the parent role to, to some extent at the time or thinking about what, what the parent would think. Right, right. It, it is interesting. I, I um, got got to write a story about uh, some little leaguers down in, in Liberty City, which is a neighborhood in Miami, which mm-hmm. shares some, some, some similarities with, with Brownsville. And uh, it's, a, it's a powerful story that, that stuck with me just, just kind of spending time there. Do you feel like we, we should we be writing more, reporting more, reading more about kids? I think so. I think I think one of the reasons we, we're not is because it's just logistically difficult right. to, to, to do that. I mean, you asked earlier about the, 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 the kind of the, the dynamics, the nature of writing a sports story. And I mean, I got access to these kids because of sports, because of football. And the kids open up to me because of the conventions of, of sports and media, right? So, like, when I've done reporting in classrooms and I just kind of stand in the back corner of a classroom looking kind of awkward, the kids are kind of shy and uncomfortable and don't really know how to interact with me. Mm-hmm. But these kids, you know, have seen their favorite athletes speak to reporters, you know, all their lives. Right. So th- th- those conventions were already in their head. So when a reporter shows up with a notepad and asks them a bunch of questions after practice – it's like no hesitation. They're like, well, of course they're going to talk to a media. They're, they're football players. And that kind of granted me an access that I, th- I don't think I could have gotten in any of the, in like other settings. Right. Which is mm-hmm. why I respect like Alex Kotlowitz. And when he wrote like, you know, <laughs> there are no children here and, 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 and jo- Jonathan Kozel for like amazing grace where they got access to kids and, and they, they portrayed kids um, very beautifully and like intimately um, through non-sports settings. I really respect that because I feel like the, the, the sports vehicle was such an important way for me to get access here. Yeah, so, that, but okay. yeah, but but to answer your question, I I do think that we don't have enough great reporting on on on, on younger kids um, because it's tough. And even when you get the access to like to figure out what a kid means when he says what he says, I guess right, mm-hmm. and, and to yeah. to interpret right a, to, under, a to get in his mind when, when you're not twelve, right, right, and like eventually, I would spend enough time with these kids that I would get really like smart and insightful answers to questions but kind of at the start you know the other side of the coin of the kids seeing you know the sports media conventions is that a lot of kids would kind of feed me these cliche lines <laughs> right. because they had heard you know their you know whatever they, they heard their athletes say and 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 they're, and they're savvy enough to, to kind of know i think kids are so smart in knowing to how to give answers that they think the adults want mm-hmm. and Breaking through that was was a challenge in a way that it, it, it that that's not a challenge for when you're talking to adults and they kind of are just more unguarded and give you an answer. Kids are unguarded in a different way, but when they're dealing with adults, they they always know that well this this adult is here and there's specific answers they want to hear, so let me right. try to give them that. Yeah. And the challenge is breaking through that even when you get the access. Right, and and that's where spending what was it four years or, or whatever mm-hmm. with these kids is, is so critical. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and and as much as it, is, as it is about kids, and you you you're mentioned this several times in that answer, but the the interplay between adults and kids, and 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 writing the story through the kids' eyes, but also through the adults' eyes, as they're seeing this next generation come up in a different neighborhood and a different time, playing a different sport than, than they played, and um, I, I don't know how intentional this you know kind of idea of generational change was. It sounds like it, it, it's very intentional, but it it comes through time and time again. And um, there's one excerpt in particular which you you read last last night, which, which struck me as as I was reading it too, but I think really gets at 
um, kind of kind of the the interactions that are going on between generations and how different generations are seeing this time. I was hoping you, you wouldn't mind uh, breaking out the book and, and, and reading a little bit. Yeah, happy to. So this this part of the book occurs when um, one of the coaches, Coach Vic, uh, is approaching one of the players, uh, Geo, after practice. Geo's one of the kids. He's new to the country. He had just moved uh, from St. Lucia in the Caribbean into Brownsville at 12 years old, about six months before the scene takes place. And the coaches are a bit worried that he's uh, starting to fall to the temptations of the neighborhood, hanging out um, on the streets more. Uh, so that's when this takes place. <clears throat> Gio, good work today, Vic said. They slapped hands and hugged. Thanks, coach. I don't know why I'm saying this. Vic paused and clasped his hands in front of him. Stay off them corners. Stay off them corners. I don't know why I'm saying this. Stay off them corners. Where you live at? Off King's Highway? That's Crips, right? Yeah, said Gio, eyes a bit wider with surprise eyes a bit wider with surprise. Lips curled into a nervous grin. Crips, High Bridge, Wave Gang, Hood Stars. You running with any of them? Gio shrugged, stared at his shoes. He was taken aback. I don't know why I'm saying this, Vic repeated. He didn't know why he was saying this. He knew this neighborhood, the pressures that pushed against the twelve year old boy, especially one new to the country. He'd seen many of his players pass through the gangs. Hell, Mo Betta players had founded the Hood Stars more than a decade earlier. Vic remembered when those kids started a beef with some kids from the Wave Gang, triggering a cycle of retaliatory beatings and murders and constant trash talk. During stretches when the beef was particularly heated, kids would take long, circuitous routes to get to a school or park a couple of blocks away. It was too risky to pass through enemy turf. A few years back, a group of Hood Star boys shot a video on Betsy Head's red cement steps, lobbing vague threats at their wave gang rivals and boasting like teenagers do. One of them posted the video on Facebook and YouTube. Police saw it and rounded up the boys, charged them with making criminal threats. Two former Mobetta players spent eight months behind bars on Rikers Island. Prosecutors didn't pursue charges against the third because he was only 12, and that kid was now one of the best high school wide receivers in the city. That boy was lucky and Vic had attended too many funerals to trust luck. I ride my bike out around here and I see you out on them corners. You don't even want to know what I'm going to do, Vic continued. You out on them corners, you're going to die. Do you want to grow up? Don't be hanging around certain people. You know who I'm talking about, Gio nodded. Them corners going to bring you down or get you in jail. Can't get no coochie in jail, Gio snickered. Vic pointed to Gio's bag. Focus on this right here and this will take you to college for free. That's where the real coochie's at. You think you're getting coochie now? Boy, they'll be all over you in college. Say you from Brooklyn, they'll be all over you. You seen the same hood rat girls you grew up with. In college, you got girls from all 50 states. Name a state, and they'll be all over you. Stay off from corners. I don't know why I'm saying this, all right? Joe smiled and lifted his bag in recognition. His coaches were always looking out for him. He knew they worried about him. Coach Chris often spoke to his mom on the phone. Gio appreciated that his coaches cared. He respected him, and he really did want to be the kind of kid they wanted him to be. He's a good kid. You don't need to worry about him, Chris would tell high school coaches about a kid like that. But the coming football season and getting into a good high school, those were distant concerns. Gio's immediate objective was making it to school and back home without getting jumped. Gio was an obvious target during his first few months in Brooklyn, when he was new, with few friends and a thick West Indian accent. He was bigger than most kids his age, but older kids messed with him once in a while. It was nothing serious, just mildly threatening taunts. Where are you from? You live around here? Yo, we're talking to you. But Gio was no punk. He didn't walk by, head down and meek, absorbing the blows. He stepped to the older boys and told them to mind their business. Sometimes things would get a little heated, with smack talk back and forth. But in the end, everybody would cool and Gio would be on his way. Going solo was asking for trouble, Gio knew. He'd made a few friends who lived around his block, and he decided he should stick closer to them. They were cool kids who wore Air Jordans and snapback hats, and they treated him warmly. He began walking to and from school with three, four, five others. The walks became easier. The friendships developed. It was these friends, not his coaches, who made sure he got back to his block every afternoon. Awesome. Thank you so much. That's you know so much comedy in there so much tragedy in there so much r reality uh and it's as as good of a advertisement for the audiobook as, as, as the book itself um, <laughs> it's one of my favorite passages man it was one of those scenes where you know as a reporter as you're writing it in your notebook you're like oh my goodness as joe didion said 
this is gold. Or yeah. just listening, I'm like, oh, I can't wait to write this scene. Yeah, like, keep going, <laughs> keep going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, two, two more things I want to get to on, on the book uh, that, that you touched on that, that I'd be remiss not to ask. The, 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 politi- the politicization, if I'm saying that right, of football, mm-hmm. how did you see that develop over the four or five years? You started this book in 2014? <clears throat> 2013. 2013. Yeah. So in 2013 to now, how did you see... Um, the conversations around football in this neighborhood, the conversations you were having just even w- w- with friends in general, um, you know, kind of what you've been talking about of this, this coded language and this, these, these discussions we were having without really having them. And then all of a sudden we were really having them and, and, and the way everybody was watching football was changing. How did, how did that play out for you being so close to the sport uh, so intensely? Yeah. So like in, in some ways, you know, you read the book and it's, it's a time capsule. It shows how much football has football that, it shows how much football has gone through in the past, you know, four or five years. Because when this, when the the, the scenes in this book took place, this was um, this was the year Ray Rice uh, got suspended. Yeah, this was which feels year, like two decades ago now. Right, right. This was the year Adrian Peterson got arrested uh, for the child abuse charges, and this was a moment when football was in its crisis of our our are our players too violent? Are are they going through the ringer and getting so? This this was the year of like the the understanding the brain damage and mm-hmm. also we're talking a lot about kind of the domestic violence issue and the issues of whether we're whether football players are are, are more likely to treat people around them violently and, and 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 then the Kaepernick stuff happened really like right when I was writing the epilogue right like the the the, the majority of the book takes place in 2013 2014 and then the last chapter takes place in 2017 and I wasn't sure how to how to address it in a way because it really had no bearing on the characters of the book much Mm-hmm. And I think because, and and I still try to figure out like what what um, what how I should have addressed that in the book because I didn't want to just kind of shoehorn it in as like oh well here's something that's going on in the background even though it's not directly related to any characters in the book other than just kind of indirectly you know showing how the main head coach is running for office and it's kind of this political time. Um, but, but to me as, 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 uh, as a writer who's covered sports and football, as someone that used to play football, as, as a football fan, um, I, it was, I think the part to me that was, was so uncomfortable was how, how, how swiftly it was, it became mm-hmm. what it is now yeah. and how, how the lines were drawn so quickly and 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 how it became the main vehicle. I mean, I, I think at this point, and there's you know enough political analysts to point out that like it, Trump brought up the Kaepernick stuff when he was at like a real low point in his administration, and there was a lot of kind of scandals and chaos swarming. And then he was in that he was in that 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 um, that he was giving that speech in Alabama, and he brought it up kind of out of nowhere. The Kaepernick thing right. had kind of died down by that point, and then kind yeah, of reignited it, and it like politicized it, and. And like as a, like a reporter for me, especially one like working on a football book, as that was going down, I was like, damn, this, this is. I had been only thinking about football from the perspective of brain damage and mm. violence, mm-hmm. and that had been those those had been the fault lines of my considerations of what was interesting and important about football today, and suddenly, foot suddenly this became the main issue of football and the strange thing about it was that it, it it it's it's not even like it's not the issue itself that is at the forefront right like it's not a debate about police brutality it's purely it became a debate purely about the anthem right and it's like that's not that that's just it's it's, it's an issue that kind of just reflects on how people think about think about other issues mm-hmm. so like the kids in the book um like they're all fans of kaepernick this a couple of them have said that you know they would kneel if they're in the same situation, hmm. but uh, so I remember when I went to one of the kids' high school games um, after I'd finished reporting the book, and I just wanted to watch him watch him play, um, and I was really curious. And this was like right in the heat. This is like fall 2016, right at the heat of like the Kaepernick stuff, and I and I think it was like a couple. It was like uh, it was like literally the week that I think Bob McNair, the Texans owner, had 
I think Don Van Don had uh, yeah. had just reported that he, <laughs> right. that 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 they had that discussion in the closed room, and I think Bob McNair said something racist about like inmates or something like that. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, have a inmates run the prison or something exactly. along those lines. Yeah. Yeah. So I was going to this game, and it was Erasmus Hall High School versus South Shore High School, and I was so curious to see whether the players were going to kneel during the anthem, and how like these 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 high schoolers were going to handle it. And then of all days, there was a downpour that day, and they didn't <laughs> do the anthem. Because uh-huh. it was raining too hard, and and no one wanted to like stay in the stands, so they they just had they just kept the kids in uh, in the locker room until it was game time, and they just brought them out. And I was like, to see whether anyone kneel, uh, melt that week. Yeah. Um, but I, th- I mean, one one thing about this generation of kids um, is that I think we've seen now that this is a generation of kids that are activists and and that are, are that know how to protest and how to advocate for their cause in ways that even like our generation was only figuring out right like mm-hmm. whether it's like the parkland kids we see in florida or the other kids that that, that spoke um in dc um they know how to how to how to talk to the world they know how to talk to the public um they're worldly kids they they, they grew up only knowing the internet they're mm-hmm. connected kids and they know about the world around them um so I'm, I'm i'm really curious to see how this generation of kids continues to interpret the Kaepernick stuff. I almost feel like they're so young that to them it wasn't as shocking as it was to us because right. it just to is, them this yeah. is just football. Yeah, this is just, just just what it is. They've only been watching football for like eight years if they're like 12, 13 years old, mm-hmm. um, even less. So this is just the way it is for them. Yeah. Did you talk to Coach Legree about Kaepernick? Did, did he ever bring it up? Or We, we talked briefly about it, um, you know, in, in, towards like the, 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 the sections at the end of the book. And... I mean, he, he he supports it, and like the the interesting thing too about like talking about it with him and with with other people in the book was that it's not a controversial issue in their lives, right? To them, it's just like Kaepernick's the hero and he's doing the right thing, mm-hmm. and it's fucked up that you know he's being blacklisted, and they're in a community where everyone around them feels the same way that he's standing up for a cause that he's he's an icon that it's it's almost the thing where like with muhammad ali where now we look back on ali and we and it's easy to assume that oh yeah everybody loved him he's always been an icon but in reality in that moment his like approval rating was like actually very low amongst the majority of americans i think that's a similar thing with kaepernick to where within certain circles he is a very clear hero and history will hopefully reflect that but in this moment it it, it is kind of it, it is a fault line that exists when you the more you interact with folks on the other side of the fault line um but for for chris and, and the kids it was never really like that big or interesting of a topic it was just like oh here's there's a fucked up thing that's happening to somebody standing up <laughs> right. for just what another, they believe in another thing right exactly just another fucked up thing yeah um all right the question i'm sure you've, you'll be asked at every book talk the the future of football uh, there's this prevailing narrative, I think, it, people in the Sports Illustrated newsroom or elsewhere, close followers of the game, that uh, football will survive, but suburban players will, will stop playing, rich kids will stop playing, and, and, and the league will become even more dominated by kids from places like Brownsville. And so it was surprising to me to see that even in Brownsville, the, I mean, the numbers are dropping, they can't field teams at certain ages. Uh, what, what, how, how did this reporting process change? the way you think about football and where do you think football goes from here? It, it's, it's a great question. And I think the kind of the fundamental crossroads seems to be, will football be boxing or baseball? Mm-hmm. And, you know, will it be just like a regionally loved sport that is still on ESPN and still a major sport, but just, but just limited in its reach or, or, or will it fall off the face of the earth the way boxing has and just be, like you said, a sport for the desperate and the people who most need it. I, 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 I think part of the part of the question is has to be like what replaces it, and over the course of the reporting. So, I, I think one of the themes that I have in the book that you know you probably noticed as you read it is the kids are always talking about basketball. Yes, right. And that was that was a very like it, that was a that was a intentional thing I put in the book mm-hmm. is that basketball comes up a lot. Mm-hmm. There's never a scene of anyone playing basketball, but like before practice, the kids are talking about basketball, and then like one of the kids. <laughs> has like him playing basketball as like Facebook profile. Right. And, 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 and so like, you know, part of me thinks like one, one like analogy I like to use is to me, like basketball is Twitter and football is Facebook hmm. mm-hmm. where like folks that are on Twitter and in like the media scene think right. that Twitter is the most important thing. But of the course. reality is that everyone's actually on Facebook. Yeah. And I think that's how it is where 
like me and and maybe you and folks like us that have these discussions it feels it, it probably feels like the football decline is happening very more accelerated than it actually is right like mm-hmm. it, the ratings are going down but it's still the highest rating so the question is By will, far, will yeah. it could be basketball it could be soccer um what is it that that fills that gap for our national pastime mm-hmm. and you know obviously basketball is a is a very progressive sport right like lebron is able to do the things he's able to do because there and i'd actually be curious to see what would happen if if someone like lebron did what he did in a league like the nfl with a fan base like the nfl hmm. um, like if lebron had done kaepernick stuff in the in, in the in the and as a part of that too is just that i think basketball players have more agency because they're more important to the team than football players right and their Absolutely. careers are longer yeah and 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 basketball is just more political than football so maybe it's reach it will not be able to reach the way football has um so i so one question is yeah is, is once more and more parents stop letting their kids play and yeah like you said a lot of kids even in brownsville um are not playing football and, and are worried about the concussion stuff how how does that change the game right so like will it be a quality of play thing where less athletic kids are are instead of the most athletic kids playing football they're playing soccer and and, and so the quality of the game is lower or will we stop watching just from like a moral perspective or will it be all of the above? Will it be that some people stop watching because of the protests? Some people stop watching <laughs> because of the brain injuries. Some people stop watching because they're more interested in, in, in soccer. Um, right. And, w- and once it gets that critical mass where your friends are playing fantasy and the bar's not full on Sunday, then it kind of, I mean, it, it snowballs right. a little bit, right? There was that, I, I wrote a story about um, high school kids protesting the anthem um, about a, about a year ago and one of the things that 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 was interesting to find was how so there were there were like the there were the anti-Kaepernick folks that began boycotting watching the NFL, and they were taking credit for like the decline in ratings. But what they didn't realize was that the pro-Kaepernick people had already started boycotting the NFL before the season, <laughs> and so you had these two groups, right? You had like these. People that, you know, they were, in, in my sources, they were, like, predominantly black. And then you had mm-hmm. other people in my sources, they were predominantly white, that were for Kaepernick and against Kaepernick and both boycotting the NFL for the exact opposite reasons. And that seemed to me like the state of football <laughs> in a nutshell. Pretty where, much, yeah. Where, where, where they're, just losing, they're just losing viewers for all different sorts of reasons that, 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 that don't even align. And I don't know, what do you, what do you think? Where do you think football goes? I, I think I, I think what you're saying about, about Facebook is, is probably true. I would I would be buying stock in, in, in football if I had the mm. option. I think in the last couple of years we've seen uh, a little more uh, reticence in the research community about head injuries. I think we, we've seen. Mm. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know if you've seen that, but to me it feels like um, that, that that crisis has has plateaued to some degree. Mm. Uh, maybe there hasn't been. Uh, you know, as far as I know, you know the 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 front page uh, suicide, like like Junior Seau that we've had. Uh, to me, it feels like that has kind of become baked into football. It's not so much, you know, a, a surprise. I think people have kind of rationalized that. And if they're still watching now, I don't think more concussion news is really going to change the way they think. I think we, we've seen in so many different ways people kind of pick their side and then they stay there regardless of, of the new news that comes out, whatever it is. So that that's kind of how I feel about football. I think people are are in it, and I think. Um, like you said, for a lot of this country, it's so baked into culture. And, and, and you talked about this a little bit about how, how key football is to, to get into high school, to get into college, to get a job. It's so, it's so integral to so many parts of society that, and a lot of those are extremely beneficial to society, obviously. So, you know, if something else doesn't come along, uh, you know, calling for the end of football, it could, could really be disastrous for a lot of people. Yeah, and that's the thing. It's like, what replaces it, right? Like, it's it's one thing for us to say, oh, you know, kids shouldn't be playing football. It's another thing to say, well, as long as we're pumping all this money into football, and, and as long as it's still the, 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 the thing that hands out the most full-ride scholarships, people are going to participate, right? Like, the incentives mm-hmm. are still there. And do we, I mean, would it be a sport that replaces it? I mean, I, so I get a lot of people saying, like, well, why can't why can't kids just you know why can't we teach them engineering or or like to play a musical instrument instead of playing football and like that's that's great and like when I have a kid I'm gonna hope to teach him have him play a musical instrument maybe instead of playing football but <laughs> yeah but the fact remains that like you have there are much more free educational opportunities through football than there are through any other activity 
because that's just kind of how we have prioritized things. And, and that'll be the case as long as football is the most popular sport in America. It, uh, you, you know, it's interesting, the, the, the Facebook, Twitter thing, something that I, I think about sometimes is uh, tobacco and, and cars, where, mm. you know, both kill, you know, 300,000 people a year, something like that. I don't, I don't know what the numbers are, but, uh, you know, we, we look down on tobacco because we don't really see the, the, the benefit of it, but we drive cars every day because we still see the benefit of it. So it's a question of whether football can say, you know, this is still worth it. Um, and, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and, and, and so, like, to... Like to tie in the, the you know the the, the uh, Facebook Twitter thing is that like basketball in some ways feels more culturally relevant like it feels like it is more in the center of our like day-to-day conversations I wonder to what degree that like the politics that are now surrounding football are actually helping it because now football is again compelling in ways mm-hmm. that it yeah. wasn't like for you from a narrative what? perspective yeah from a narrative perspective like even like w- the crises that occurred like when i was writing the book right the ray rice stuff the adrian peterson stuff that's just like objectively upsetting things to think about right <laughs> yeah, versus right. the politics thing is actually a conversation to be had right like right, it's there's really right there's not much of a ray rice conversation to be had other than oh yeah man that's fucked up should be suspended <laughs> this long or this long should he go to jail should he not but yeah. there's not really a, a discussion there that's interesting to have right the problem versus, for the nfl though is that you can have the discussion without tuning in on sunday largely that's a good point that's a good point and 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 and, and to what degree does i mean do, do you think that the rating slip has is it a, is it like kind of a fluke because of like the, the the cable cutting generation like other kind of logistical factors or do you think the drop in rating was because people are not interested in football as much I would say it's probably 10% people not being interested in 90% macroeconomics and, and mm. digital democratization and all that. But but the counterpoint is that the NBA is up. So that, that to me is, is kind of the most surprising thing. Mm. Um, and and, and the, the question I still haven't really answered is, you know, what, what have they done? And that, that's, you know, something I should, I, I should think more about. But uh, yeah, so, so to me, it's mainly macroeconomic, but that doesn't mean it's any less pressing. And that doesn't mean that that only that makes the ten percent that are leaving for other reasons even more important because you know every every viewer uh, counts and and so it, it is very interesting to see uh, the NFL and its partners try to focus so much uh, on the games that are being played when everybody else wants to talk about other stuff and 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 whether they can convince you to to, to focus on those three hours because I mean we don't focus on three hours on on anything anymore so it, it's a difficult difficult challenge uh, anything else on, on on football or on the book I. I, I we, we've been having a great conversation. I want to ask you about you know, some of your other work and and and, and life as well, as well. Yeah. So I think the last thing is is there the, yeah. the, the, the other theory I've been tossing uh-huh. around with, with football is I, I think it, it might have been in the Ken Burns baseball documentary that somebody maybe like George Will or someone made the point that baseball was like perfect for the radio and football was right. perfect for TV right. and that played a role in football surpassing baseball when it did. Mm-hmm. And I feel like basketball is perfect for the internet in that way to uh-huh. where. Like we have these ten-minute YouTube videos that are just like the entire game, like every point Steph Curry scored in the game in like eight mm-hmm. minutes, and that you can just boil it down and it's very like highlight-based. And and I wonder if if a degree of basketball success right now is tied to the fact that it is just it it it, it is much it's more conducive to the internet visually, and its players are like interacting with the internet in like more interesting ways. No, with, it, yeah, yeah, the, no, the you're absolutely, yeah, absolutely, absolutely right. And 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 baseball is great for newspapers too, even even before the regular. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but but of course, the, the the counterpoint to that is that people are still watching the NBA games on TV, even though they could watch the highlights on YouTube. And yeah, um, so so it's it's compelling enough, I, I suppose. The and, and I think a big part of that, is, like you're talking about, not not just being able to watch the games on YouTube, but being able to interact with the personalities, being such a a player driven league, and and really knowing so much about these players. And and I mean, mm. people know the names of Steph Curry's kids and his wife and yeah. his family, and 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 that's something that. Outside of Tom Brady, really, no one could could name uh, an NFL player's wife. I don't think. Um, yeah. So and I think that, that that's a huge factor and it, as well. And, and basketball is like an on-demand sport, right? Like it's on whenever we need it to be on. We come home from yep. work, and there'll be a game on. Well, football, it's like that TV version of like scheduled appointment viewing. Appointment viewing, right? Yeah. yeah. Anyway, yeah. So that's all I got on that. <laughs> no, 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 that, that that's great. Uh, what's it like working at Buzz? It's again? great, man. I think uh, I think I can speak for all of my other fellow like former print reporters who are now with BuzzFeed that like to be in a place that for now at least feels very financially stable relative yeah. to the places we used to work. I worked at the village voice before mm-hmm. I worked at BuzzFeed. This story, uh, this book came out of a story from the village voice. Mm. Um, and it's, it, they, 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 they treat us well. They care about 
journalism, which is good. And and it, the newsroom is run like a very old school newspaper newsroom where it's desk based, desk based, and and I think morale is high because we're all just happy to be the place that cares about what we do <laughs> and that has like a that has a, a mechanism to make money independent of our journalism. I think we're you know we're working. I think we already are actually profitable just as a newsroom, uh, but it is comforting knowing that we have this. We have this company behind us that knows, so far at least, how to make money as a media company. Um, and it's kind of following in the model. I think the model that is most closely parallel to what we've built to this point is like the network model, right? Where it's like CBS will have two and a half men and then they'll have 60 minutes. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and no one sees any conflict in that, right? And, mm-hmm. and I think one of the things that BuzzFeed has had to overcome is, is, is people um, not seeing BuzzFeed in those terms so well they'll see like like we every reporter BuzzFeed has like that comment at the bottom that someone leaves where it's like you know why should I trust you know this cat video website or something like that <laughs> right and not able to see BuzzFeed as you know for, for kind of what it's become um but it's great they let me do the work I love it's I feel like I have the job now that I hope to have like 10 years from now yeah and I just kind of like stumbled into it at the right time <laughs> No, I, I I feel the same way. That's nice, nice to hear you say. Yeah, I um, had the pleasure of, of listening to your your talk at the Power of Narrative conference at Boston University, which which Don also spoke at in, in the spring, and and you talked specifically about writing for the internet, where you know, so it's it seems like you've really found a way to make BuzzFeed y- your home and and to write for them, and, and in that way, it's, we're kind of in this in this weird place now where. Uh, there's more long form writing than ever, but it, it's harder than ever to keep people's attention span, you know, for long form on, on the internet. So, I was just you know, w- what were for people who couldn't be there at BU, I wanted wanted to give you an opportunity to give, you know, uh, one, one or two or three kind of kind of tips for writing long on the internet and and things you've learned, particularly at, at BuzzFeed. Yeah, I mean, I, I I I wanted to be a journalist because of like the Sports Illustrated magazine writing, like the Gary Smith stuff. That was that was that was my my template. So being someone that came up in like the print world and the, and like the magazine all weekly writing world, I had, I, 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 BuzzFeed kind of realigned how I thought about writing in a lot of ways because I came up not really caring how many people read the story, just that it was a good story. And let me just make this as literary as possible and, and as yeah. narratively appealing as possible. Make sure your editor likes it. Right. 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 And, 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 and you know, and the, the newspapers will go out and whoever has them in their hand will read my story, of course, you know, and, and you're not, you're not really thinking numbers, you're not really thinking metrics. With BuzzFeed, because it lives purely online, you have to consider, one, that anyone who clicks on your story or is thinking about clicking on your story is also, like, has the entire internet at their disposal. So you're not competing with, like, the Washington Post and New York Times, you're competing with, like, YouTube and Instagram as well. And, and two, I, you know, seeing the numbers there at the top of the story, knowing how many people read the story because they're only reading online, so you have those metrics. When you have a story that blows up on BuzzFeed, it makes you feel like it's a waste when it doesn't blow up because (laughs) you have that opportunity, right? So if I have a story get like a million views and the next one gets like 20,000, it's like, well, fuck, this was a wasted opportunity. (laughs) When, you know, and and, and you feel like you don't want to take that platform for granted, right? If you Mm -hmm. have a chance to reach so many readers it's important that you take advantage of that opportunity because, you know, we write stories we feel are important and that are worth reading. And, 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 and it forced me to figure out, well, how can I reach all those folks without sacrificing the writerly tendencies that, that, that made me fall in love with this craft. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think the main lesson I learned is that you, it, you got to hit them earlier, mm-hmm. right? Like you gotta, you have to create an urgency earlier in the story than, than I would have, done previously i think that's the biggest way my writing has changed is is that that from the first sentence to the second graph to the end of the lead section i i know that each of those pivotal points i need to win over the reader and i need to win them over the first sentence within like three paragraphs i need to create an urgency of of why they're reading the story and by the end of the first section i need to have hooked them and need to have conveyed the main idea so i used to be a very kind of esoteric netgraph writer previously <laughs> yeah. where i would just kind of bleed the netgraph into maybe the second section maybe late in the first section right now I've, I've kind of uh evolved to the point that i i craft the netgraph uh in a much more traditional way and i bring it up a lot higher i, I think mm. there's a way in which internet long-form writing parallels 
newspaper enterprise writing versus versus like magazine writing to where 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 newspaper enterprise feature writing you kind of have to bring up the the point of the story a little earlier than you would have to in a magazine story um and and i think that's been the model that has i think that is kind of the the, the rough model on which a lot of a lot of um successful long form writing on the internet is done that said like a good story is still a good story and you can write thing in something in the most magazine way possible and if it's a good story if it's good yarn it still has a chance to to blow up um but but i think one one thing that 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 i've kind of adjusted to being at buzzfeed and 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 wanting to maximize the platform is kind of how to how to find that balance of of keeping the narrative momentum from the first line to the last because every line is a line that could let your reader like walk away right they're not they're mm-hmm. not tied to your they're not invested in your story they would to would they they're not invested in your story in the way they would be if they were paying for subscription or if they had the newspaper come to their door um you're just another thing on the internet that they've stumbled upon <laughs> and so it, it, it makes it a lot more urgent for you to do what you can to to, to grip them with every line yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think the last story of yours that we highlighted in the newsletter was, was Fatal Errors, which uh, you tell me, but it seemed, it seemed like it got, that got a good a good response and it's you know, probably as a good example of any for people, you know, if, if you are a, a writer like me who, who wants to kind of figure out how to do this is, is a good example. And like you're saying, I'm just kind of looking at it now, but you know, you hit, you hit the nut graph high with since 2015, at least 47 people have shot friends, loved ones, roommates, or emergency responders. They said they'd mistaken for home intruders. And but at the same time, I think you know the most popular part of that story might have been might have been the end. So you you know you managed to to hook people and keep them and 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 and, and they left happy customers kind of w- with what you held held on to uh, there at the end. So we'll put a link to that one. And for you for you personally, when you're talking about writing on the internet, I'm curious. This is kind of two questions in one, but how you focus uh, for an extended period of time on a single story when you know in the back of your head that you know 400 words on why cheerios are overrated could get a million views mm-hmm. uh so how you kind of focus uh on a story and and also when you know it's done um you know here at sports illustrated we have a deadline we have a magazine it's got to get into it i imagine it's a little different for you so so, so two questions how do you focus mm-hmm. and, and when do you know it, it's ready to um go? i i think so to answer the so i think i think the first question is is, is actually easy for me it, it's it's this is just what i love to do Right, like, mm-hmm. like I just enjoy writing about the stuff I write about more than I would four hundred words on Cheerios, and and so, uh, to me, that's always been. Um, I've always understood that that's just like part of the game, right? And 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 the fact that people will read other things more than they will read my things, and so it it all it all it always just feels like house money, right? Like the fact that I'm getting <laughs> I'm I'm getting paid to live in New York and write five to six thousand word stories it's like and like period that's it like if that's my life i'm happy with that you know so mm-hmm. i don't have to so i don't stress too much about about um the 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 tendencies of people you know on the internet I, I, i've always been a fan of like you know the critical acclaim over the commercial appeal type thing like type yeah. mindset so so yeah so i i think it's 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 easier to focus when you just realize that well fuck man I, I'm, I'm living my dream <laughs> job i'm doing exactly what i want to do mm-hmm. for a place that lets me do it and for a place that allows me to to have a platform and also the fact that that cheerio story pays my salary <laughs> yeah. so i'm like also all for that right <laughs> um so how, how do i know it's done that that's such uh that's such an interesting question because i i think that my mindset on that has adjusted so much over my career. Hmm. Um, so like one thing about running on the internet is that there is no print deadline, right? Right. Like we can run it whenever we want to run it. Right. So and like, no length, no length requirement either. And no length requirement. Exactly. So there have been times when I, I've been like in competitions with other outlets who are also working on the same like long form story. Right. Mm-hmm. And we've been in that situation and it's stressful, <laughs> but for me, it is such a huge benefit that we can, like if I'm competing with like Rolling Stone or GQ or something, they have it set for a certain week, right? And they could like expedite it, but you know they still have a specific turnaround time. And I think more and more print places are adjusted to that by just knowing if they're, like I think the New Yorker has done a great job of that, where they will just throw some online without Mm -hmm. seeming to, without having to consider too much which print edition it's going to, right? If like, if there's a, if there's like, I think it was like like that, um, the Ronan Farrow's, Harvey Weinstein story. I think it came out just because the New York 
times one came out, so it's like, well, fuck, we got to get this up <laughs> yeah. right now. And and I think more and more print places are, are recognizing that that they don't have to have the reverence for the print issue that that they once had, and 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 and, and that things will catch fire if they're online. Um, so so that's always been a benefit for me that we can just put things up when we need to. But yeah, it also introduces the question of like, how do we know it's done and when we put it up? I, I think for me, there's like there's there's several elements that in a story that I know I need to have, right? So like I need to have access to the main character. I need to have that main mm-hmm. narrative. Yeah. And I need to have the the get in that nut graph, right? So mm-hmm. the number that you read in that nut graph, like since right. you know two thousand whatever, this many people have done this thing. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes those are the main two elements that 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 I'm like competing for. And once I get those I'm done. Because like the ex- <laughs> the background expert interviews, right. the context, like that stuff's easy to, to get mm-hmm. The two most important things are what is the kind of the, the newsy fact in this story that makes this different and new and essential, and what is what is the narrative? Who is the character that will be the vehicle for for this uh, for this fact? Oftentimes they'll kind of work in concert. Sometimes I'll get the main character first, and then I spend the last like two weeks getting that number and just looking through like data and looking through like cases and stuff. Sometimes I'll get that number first and I'll have that fact first. And then I have to find, like I'm now in a situation where I have the fact and now I just need to find a main character. That, that, that the story you mentioned, the, um, the, uh, the gun one. Fatal errors. Fatal yeah. errors, yeah. That one was an example of where we had, we had the data early. I, we, we, we worked with uh, the trace on that. Uh, Sean Campbell shared the byline with me. He, mm-hmm. he handled a lot of the data stuff and he had a spreadsheet and he had the numbers very early on. He and, was there last night at, at the book talk, right? He was there, yeah. I'm yeah. glad he got a chance to see him. Uh, yeah. He's a great reporter, very talented. And he, he was so quick on his, like, his role was to get the data. My, my role was to get the characters. And he got the data very early on. And we uh-huh. had a spreadsheet of all these cases. And we had the numbers. We had the net graph already. And the my job was to try to get one of these cases to talk to us. And that ended up being the challenge. And, and we ended of up you know, finding someone eventually. But that was, like, the last element. And once, so this was a case where I knew the story was done when we got the character and we... And, and we got, you know, the, her narrative and his and his narrative. And and, and, mm-hmm. and um, sometimes it doesn't work that way, but that's the way it, it worked in, in that case. But yeah, to me, those are the two elements. And, and once I get both of those elements, I know, I know I'm there. Yeah. Have you always wanted to write a book? How, how, why write a book? Yeah, I've always, I've always been intrigued by the process of it, the challenge of it, the freedom of it. I think if you talk to any of my editors, they'll tell you that one of my weaknesses is I write too long. I like to be a little non-tight with my drafts. Yeah. I, I used to be the kind of writer, and I'm ashamed of this now, but I used to be the kind of writer where if the if the if the word count was like fifty five hundred or six thousand, I would turn in like an eight or nine thousand draft. Uh-huh. Yeah, but there was sure. a pride in that number, and I've since, <laughs> I've since evolved from those immature days uh-huh. and like have a real like reverence and respect for the ability to keep it tight, and and I think applying that to books is even more important than applying it to any other hmm. medium because mm-hmm. books are like long to begin with. And <laughs> the more, con- the more concise uh, you can get it, the more people will be willing to read it. But yeah, I'd, I'd always, I'd always, I mean, I, 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 there's so many books I love, so many nonfiction <laughs> books I love, and it's always something I wanted to do, right? Whether it's like breaks of the game or Friday night lights or, or uh, there are no children here. Um, it had always been a genre that I'd always envisioned myself trying at some point. Uh, it was the dream. It was. It was. It was. I think if you had asked me now, asked me years ago, what was what's my dream job? It's to like write books and then also do long form stories. But books were always kind of the uh, the thing that was driving me, the, the the goal I always wanted to accomplish, and and it was always like I like this book here was like the fourth book idea I ever had. Like I I had always had like some book idea in my head. And then it would just fizzle out, either because I realized the idea wasn't good enough, or because I moved cities and jobs, and so I had to drop an idea. Mm-hmm. Um, but I always, I always wanted to write a book. I, 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 it's always, it's still my favorite form. It's still the form I enjoy consuming the most. Um, it gives so much freedom, so much context, so much ability to really dive into an issue. Like the thing I love about long form is your ability to dive into an issue and just be obsessed with a world for like yeah. what, two to six months of your life. And and with a book, it's just that, but like supercharged and even more intense where you're just like, you lived in this world for five years now. And I really enjoy that. I really enjoyed being able to dive into that in, in a way that, that you really, you can't as much in, in any other form. Hmm. Um, do, you have, do you have a second book topic? I do, I do. 
uh, I'm excited about it. It'll be, I think it'll be, uh, it'll be immigration related. I'll say that awesome. much. Yeah, I'll say that awesome. much. No, you won't fuck it. I'll just tell you. I don't care. Uh, it'll be, it'll be, it'll be a version of uh, an essay I wrote about my family and my family's immigration story. Yeah, yeah, um, that, that was an awesome essay. We'll, we'll, we'll put a link to that. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, and um, so that that I think it's going to be a very it's going to be a, it's going to be different than that. But that was kind of the the birth. That was kind of the birth of that idea in the way mm-hmm. that the, the Village Voice um, story on Mobetta was the birth of this book. Hmm. Um, but it's still very early. I still need a sure. proposal. It, it'll probably <laughs> I I spent five years on this first book. I'm probably yeah. spend five years on this next book. So yeah. I like to take my time on it. So we'll, we'll pencil you in uh, Sunday Long Read Podcast, September 2023. I'm writing it down now. Albert Perfect. Smaha, it's on my book. calendar. <laughs> <laughs> Any, anything else uh, you want to get to today? Oh, man, I think we covered everything. This is great. Awesome. Well, well, thank you so much again to Albert Samaha, BuzzFeed News reporter, author of the new book, Never Ran, Never Will. It's out uh, Amazon, local bookstores, wherever you want to find it. Check out the audiobook as well. I'm sure that's going to be a must-listen. I'll have to check that out. Thank you uh, to you for listening. Thank you for, to Julian McKenzie, our producer this week, and the rest of the Sunday Long Read staff for helping to put together the newsletter. If you're not a subscriber, you can join at sundaylongread.com slash subscribe. Next newsletter, as always, will be up this Sunday. You can subscribe, rate, and review to the podcast on iTunes or wherever else you like to listen, and we will be back soon. Thanks again. Bye. Bye.